Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, WS underscore owned for all you gamers out there, shares his background in classical music and performance and how it prepared him for some of the most competitive jobs in finance. In part one of two, we learn about the accident that changed everything and the big break he got right after the great financial crisis to land his first job in finance in the back office. Listen to hear how he turned that opportunity into his first of many transitions to a front office role to become a leveraged finance originations analyst at a regional firm, eventually the same role at a bulge bracket bank, and really what that meant for his career. Enjoy. Okay, WS Owned, welcome to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary bio. Yeah, sure. So I had a pretty unconventional background and a sort of entrance into to finance. I started out as a musician, was trained uh, at a, a conservatory. Um, for most of my life, I was a musician. And, you know, during the greater financial crisis, I unfortunately had first moved to New York City and I was, you know, concertizing, performing and touring. Had broken my hand that year um, in about 2009. And so, uh, I, you know, obviously in 2009 was the best time to break into finance, um, you know, for a person with no background in, in internships or finance, uh, uh, financial experience. And so that was uh, a very interesting transition for me. Um, you know, ever since I uh, transitioned into finance, I started really in the back office, clawed my way over the years uh, into a front office revenue generating role. And that's been a really rewarding process um, for me personally, because I really got to understand the business um, from, from, you know, sort of back office to front office, sort of all the, the wheels that it took to, to make a financial, a large financial institution run. And I think you have to have an appreciation for all the, for all the, the intricacies that people kind of pay attention to, because it, it really is important, right? When money's involved. So um, I, I was able to, to get a really first, a front row seat to understanding both back office through front, um, uh, to front office through back office. So um, since then, I've been, uh, you know, I spent about 10 years on the sell side and recently jumped to the buy side, um, investing in credit equities, uh, event-driven situations. And it's been quite a journey. Awesome. Let's start all the way back. So before we move on to the finance stuff, I mean, the background's super interesting. A musician, were your parents always like, hey, go be in finance? Or they were like, hey, we're going to support you and let you be a musician if you want, but then you broke your hand and then everything changed. What, what, what was like the, the family support? Was there anybody in finance or, or is everyone musicians? 
Uh, yeah, no, nobody in my family was anywhere remotely closely related to finance at all. Like we didn't have any CEOs or managing directors or VPs in the family. Uh, very humble beginnings. My mom was a, grew up on a farm. My dad was, you know, son of teachers, uh, elementary school teachers. And I, I think the, 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 the idea of finance actually didn't come into play until my mom, I think it, she was on a trip once in Europe and she had, <laughs> she had come across a, a soothsayer, one of those fortune tellers. And I was with her and we just did something for fun. We sat down and, and we asked the, the person to, you know, tell our fortune and the, and, and the person uh, essentially said, look, it, you know, your, your son has a great uh, future for, for success. I mean, he's a musician now. Um, and we didn't tell this person that I was a musician. They just knew, which is weird. And, and, and then, so as we went on, um, the person essentially told us that I was going to change careers at some point and I would make a good addition to the business community, which was, this was probably 15 years ago, I think, and on this trip. And I kind of walked away from that trip, like, you know, WTF, like, what does this person know, right? So, um, you know, this guy's crazy at it. It's like, I want my money back. Um, and lo and behold, in 2009, that's what, that's exactly what happened. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the introduction was, was more by accident. It was accidental than purposeful, but, you know, life deals you a certain hand and you just, you just go along, you play with it. And so that's what I did. So you're getting your master's you're in, in performance, right? So you were actually like, were you actually doing concerts and all this stuff and then what, an accident or something? What happened? Yeah, so um, the way that the- Yeah, I don't understand how it works. We don't understand the music industry here uh, for performers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it depends on the type of music that you, you ultimately focus in. But, you know, I grew up before YouTube was even a thing. And so before- you know, influencers and having your own channel was even a thing. So yeah. really it was straight up hustling and you talked and you call people, um, whether it's people that you meet at competitions where you're competing at, or, um, you know, after you played a concert in a city, there were managers or, you know, publicists or uh, journalists in the, that can make an introduction for you to somebody else. Um, it was straight up hustling. That's what you needed to do. You need to manage your uh, career 24 seven. So, um, the, the, the route is, I mean, it, there are many different routes to ultimately what you want and really what you want to do for yourself. Do you want to be in an orchestra? Do you want to be a soloist? Do you want to be a pop musician or do you want to play classical or jazz? I mean, there are just so many different career what did you tracks. Want to do? What did you want to do? Um, personally, I, I, I loved, um, you know, classical. Uh, I had, I have classical training, um, but I really love jazz as well. So I did. I did that. I mean, as a musician, you start out absolutely poor. You end up absolutely poor also. Yeah. So you you were trained to really take any and every gig that came along your way. And so, you know, I've played for bar mitzvahs. I played for weddings and I played at, you know, places like Carnegie Hall. I played at and, and on top of that, it's like you just take gigs and I anything you can. Yeah, anything you can. And so I played with a friend dueling pianos to pay for rent. I remember. Um, and we, we were basically, you know, we went in and we said, Hey, look, we could do better than these guys hire us. Uh, and we can bring in more people to the bar. And so, you know, these are times that you, I think I could say a lot of the hustle that I learned was from my music days. And I took a lot of those lessons over to finance. So. And so how long were you kind of doing that hustle where you were like, 
surviving on what you were making in music? Yeah, so, I mean, it it could start as young as, you know, when you're taking lessons. I mean, if you're competent and you're, you're, you're a good communicator, you can start teaching if you're a teenager, right? And were you, were you? No, I wasn't. I mean, I was too kind of siloed in my own head and I was so focused on, Hey, I need to, I need to get as good as I can in this before I go to college and, you know, before I go to competition. So I just, I didn't have time for any of that. I think where, where it really began was in college was, you know, there were, there would be these low periods, these, you know, off times where, you're not playing concerts or you're not traveling for competitions and you know you're kind of sitting around twiddling your thumbs and you know learning new repertoire but you know you learn quickly that if you're living in new york city um you know there are a lot of there's a lot of people that really want musical lessons and if you have you know prestigious university or conservatory on your resume people be very willing to pay you you know 50 100 150 bucks for you know per hour to teach them and so um and then once you start to build that network of um, people who like you as a teacher, then uh, hopefully the the word of mouth will start to spread, you know, and, and they'll say, hey, look, right, like my kids did it, did it for you? Like, did you start doing that? So you got to the York and then like you started building a network and you were you were actually making decent money at some point? Yeah, yeah, you can make some really decent money. I mean, I, I kind of did the math and I was saying, look, if you're charging 100, 150 bucks an hour, yeah, you probably to make a pretty decent living to be able to afford New York City, you can probably have up to about, you would probably need about 20 to 25 students, maybe 30. But if you spread that out over, you know, call it the majority of it over five days, and then maybe one or two students on the weekends, it's very manageable, right? And that still leaves you, you know, five to 10 hours of practice time if you want to during the day. And so what are you, yeah, so what are you looking at there? Like it's 80 grand or something a year, something like that, 100? Yeah, I mean, like back then when I was teaching, I mean, 80, 80 grand was good, right? Yeah. But, I mean, this was before I even discovered what people got paid in finance, right? But, you know, I mean, yeah. well, I mean <laughs> that was an order of magnitude above. <laughs> hey, well, I, I'm sure you have maybe had to take a pay cut when you went uh, to work in finance. Was that accurate? Or so, so let's talk about, so then there was an accident. What happened? Yeah, so it was, um, it was an accident. It was more of um, in like a recreational sport accident. I was going skiing and you know, there was, it was just, it was just unfortunate I've skied and, you know, in the past, but, you know, there was just this mogul that I didn't see. I fell, I had my helmet on, thank God, but, you know, I landed on my hand and, you know, most people out there who are musicians, I mean, one thing that you should understand is that they are very, very careful with the, 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 the money makers, right? So yeah. if you're, if you're an instrumentalist, if you're, you know, if you're a vocalist, you're not smoking. I mean, I do know singers who smoke but um you know if you're a pianist or you're a violinist then you're you're scared to death of hurting your hands or your fingers people get those insured um and so yeah i mean i broke my hand and unfortunately that was at the time um you know a career ending injury and so i wasn't able to um you know sort of recover from that i mean i i broke my hand before when i was a teenager but that's when you're a teenager everything heals fine right but um this was a different type of break. And so I didn't believe it at the time, but, you know, I, I, I was kind of still practicing with the cast on as I did the first time, but, um, you know, quickly realized that, you know, this was not going to be something that I could kind of recover from. Wow. Were you insured? Uh, no, I was not insured. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have the money to pay for the premiums. That's how, that's, that's how poor I was. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, you're in New York living off of, you know, it sounds like you were doing okay. You're doing fine. Um, yeah. If you hadn't broken your hand, well, so, so then was, that was the, what prompted everything, the shift? Is it like, okay, I can't do this for my life, for my career, so now I need to do something else? Yeah, so at the time, it was 2009, the world was ending, mm -hmm. um, and every single one of my friends who had been working in, you know, called investment banking, they were pretty junior at the time, right? So, you know, think like maybe second or third year associates or, or second or third year analysts or maybe first year associates. Yeah. Um, you know, half of them got fired. Um, and you know, that kind of prompted a very similar conversation that folks are having today post COVID is that, you know, the world is ending. I had a really, really crappy lifestyle. I didn't live a life and people basically wondered, Hey, are you, are you thinking about perhaps going into a different business? And so for me at the time I was, you know, I was like, okay, I could see myself in sales. I get along with people. I like to talk, I understand process and I like products. Um, and if, you know, essentially um, you know, I, I focused really on finance because I got an econ degree in, uh, in college. And so I thought that was quote unquote, the most seamless way to, to kind of integrate and go over a uh, little did I realize that nobody cared about where you went to school. Nobody cared about your GPA. Nobody cared about who you knew in 2009. It was like, no, it was, it was a bloodbath. Yeah. It was really bad. It was really bad. So, I mean, what's interesting is, yeah, I mean, so you knew, all these kids in this bank because you went to a target school just for the listeners to know yep so like it wasn't it wasn't as if you didn't know what investment banking was it was just you know there was never a thought of hey i'm going to go do this so you never had any internships in college you had nothing on your resume that would say except for the economics degree that would say finance correct correct and um so how do you even start what did you do this is back in oh oh nine like you said the world's ending Everyone's getting fired. You have no experience in finance. So how are you even approaching this, this kind of shift? I mean, it was, it's not the best answer because, um, well, I didn't have the benefit of Wall Street Oasis at the time. And I was, I only, we were there, we were around, man. You didn't find yeah, it. Yeah, you guys were around and over sort of through the process, I found you guys. And, you know, at the time, most of my friends were musicians and unfortunately, it wasn't, it wasn't like I had a, a network of, of people that I could go and say, hey, like, what did you go through? What was your process? What did you have to do to get your foot in the door? And so for me, it was, I mean, for lack of a better way of explaining, it was like a spray and pray type of approach, right? And, with, you know, in retrospect, it wasn't the best way because, like, I could have used my time so much better, targeted my conversations and people um, a lot better. And so I think, I think the one thing that I remember from the time was um, I had been going to all these job websites and I don't think LinkedIn was as big back then either, but it was like all these, like I don't know, Glassdoor, I can't remember what the, the, the sites were, but I tossed, I kept count, I tossed about 260 resumes to very different places and I got no responses back in You're the two in the two months that i had spent and it was a combination of just my resume just didn't have anything that the headhunters are looking for and my cover letters nobody read uh, and i just didn't know anybody in the industry and so what i really started to do and 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 I eventually figured out was and i can get talk to this more later but it's it's networking 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 like you i cannot stress how absolutely important it is to, to, to meet the right people. 
And that's not to say that I'm not trying to bash on headhunters or HR by any means. They do a very critical job, but there are, and there are really good headhunters out there that do the right things. And if you talk to them and they spend the time to get to know who you are, they can then find the jobs that are most appropriate for you. But um, away from that, I think you need to talk to people who work in the business, who work at the companies that you want to be at, or work in positions that you ultimately want to, to, to be in, right? And so, um, I mean, I'll give, you, I'll give you a number, and maybe I'm exaggerating here, but I would say upwards of 90% of all the jobs I've ever gotten in finance have been from referrals or from somebody that I talked to. Yeah. You don't even hear about job, the job. Most of the jobs are never posted. No. They're internally hired or friends of friends are brought in. So it's who you know. Correct. The way it usually works is, you know, the, the need for the analyst or the new hire comes like is discussed internally and before any job description is written. In fact, that's probably the last step of the process yeah. is that the job description is written and it's posted. People internally ask, who do you know? Do you know anybody who would be good for this role? Do you know anybody smart, right? That's the first round of people that, that get pinged. And it helps to know folks who are in the business, who you've worked with on deals or you know, on opposite ends. Um, and that, that word of mouth, that referral, it, it goes a very, very long way, right? Because it effectively catapults you to the front of the line yep. and you get to talk to management first. You get to set the expectations and the tone, right? Um, and the quality of of the analysts right who they're hiring like you get to dictate that as well so um yeah network 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 you got to go out and talk to people right it's uncomfortable for a lot of people luckily did for you me, did it, you feel uncomfortable since you didn't have since did you feel there was a little bit of like insecurity given the fact that you had no finance and it was music on, on oh yeah absolutely i mean i was i mean i have i think by nature of being a performer in music um, you're comfortable being on stage and in front of people. Stress. And you, yes, you're you're very comfortable with stress. You're, were you were you popping like beta blockers during your uh, <laughs> performances ever? <laughs> so there was a period in my life where, for some reason, my hands started sweating a lot more when I was playing. Yeah, and that that just makes your it, it just it, it like it makes it harder to play, right? You, you slip off the notes, you slip off the string, whatever. Yeah. Um. And then I had a friend who was telling me, oh, you should, you should check this thing out, like beta blockers. I take it all the time. And I'm like, okay, I tried it and I played and I literally was almost asleep through the entire performance. I couldn't feel anything. I didn't feel the drive. I didn't feel like my heart pumping. I was like, I can't do this. I need to feel like I'm on the edge, ready to fall over. Yeah. But where, the, where that, the, the magic of performing is, is that you have enough control that you're standing on the edge, but you're never, ever in the danger of like falling over the edge. Losing it. Yeah. Yeah. Losing it. You just have to, you have to keep the audience as captivated as you. And I think you can't really do that unless you're there with them. Right. So, I mean, interview is performance, right? It is. It is. It is. It is a marketing and selling of who you are. Right. Because, yeah. you know, in both situations, I can see a lot of similarities in that you know, in a performance, you're communicating, you're interpreting either your own music or somebody else's music, right? And you're trying to sell that and convince somebody in the audience of that. Uh, there's nothing different about me going into an interview and trying to convince somebody to hire me, right? These yeah. are my skills. This is what I do. This is what I'm good at. This is not what, what I'm not good at. Um, and luckily, I got that type of training. And, you know, interviews itself never was a 
you know, they were never a problem for me. I think it was really just about standing on, you know, getting on top of the soapbox and saying the right words, and the right, you know, the right buzzwords and not sounding like an idiot. Mm-hmm. That took time and you had to, you had to go through a couple um, of these and fall on your face a couple of times and then sort of learn what they want to hear and what you have to say. So I hate to say that it's a process, right? So two months, you're kind of getting zero responses. So you're saying, realizing, okay, I actually have to know people or there's no chance I'm, I'm throwing my resume into a black hole. I have, I have a great, great GPA, great school, nothing, no bites. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think it's obvious why there were no bites. It's just like, you know, it's like you were just, you were getting screened, like auto screened out or, you know, yeah. a recruiter was like two seconds on your resume and throwing it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think folks on the, um, you know, in the business understand that like you probably have been through situations where you're asked to screen resumes, right? Like in your first or second year, you know what the job entails. And so in one indiscriminate day, maybe somebody will pop by one of the senior guys would be like, Hey, we're looking for some of our analysts or we're looking for a, a, a new analyst to join or interns. Here's a stack of in, uh, like resumes, take a look at it. Right. And like these resumes are, you know, there's like a pile of 200 and they'll dole out 50, 50, right. We're, you know, even ways across four people and you, you just have, you have maybe half an hour to screen 50 resumes. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're lucky if anybody spends more than 20 seconds on your on your resume. And, you know, at the time, I just didn't know because I have been, you know, a musician and I was like, oh, okay, I'll just put this, this and this on there and then look at everybody ignore me right, on the job application. So, but yeah, I, I would say how I ultimately ended up in getting traction was I, I was able to network and um, get in touch with somebody. I was, I think I was at music festival at the time. I sent out, a, you know, I sent out a, a resume to um, a, a bank, um, you know, and, and I'm not going to name it, but there were many banks that were, that came under the purview of the, of the SEC during the greater financial crisis because of the amount of leverage that they put on. And so there was a, a team that was created internally across all these different banks to monitor, you know, portfolios of bad assets, right? Bad credit cards, bad auto loans, bad student debt, whatever it is, it got grouped into a good cone back right, for most of these banks. And so that was my foot in the door, right? There was somebody, um, the team um, was very small. I worked directly with the COO at the time. But how did you even meet this person? At a music festival, just randomly? No, it was, it was, it was weird because my, my mom had, um, had, re- had basically talked to her son uh, and her son was applying for college. It's just a random conversation. I was there and I was at the meeting. Your mom, your mom or whose mom? Yeah. My mom and I were at this like summer thing. It was okay. like a, you know, it was like a picnic, call it a picnic yeah, yeah, or yeah. something. And the person was there um, with her son and, you know, the, the person had worked at a major investment bank. And so we just got talking. Uh, my mom started talking to the, to the kid uh, because he was talking about colleges and where he wanted to apply and she dragged me over and he's like oh my son just went through this you know four years ago five years ago so you know just uh you know he he she willingly volunteered me for this and then <laughs> halfway through the conversation we found out like the, the mom comes over and then you know the, the the mom's like oh yeah i work at one of the investment banks we're actually looking to build out a team we need somebody to help out and that's where it started you know and in it wasn't through a job description. It wasn't through a posting on a job site. It was basically. It's that connection. It's that personal connection. That personal connection. They look at you. They see you. They shake your hand. 
you know, they do that, like, you know, elevator, like, Hey, give me your elevator pitch. Like what, why do you belong here? And it, it's just, it's so much easier than being a, a two dimensional package, right. That you submit to headhunter, right. Or HR department. Again, I'm not ripping on those guys, but they're dealing with an unbelievable amount of, of like names they have to screen on a daily basis. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So really interesting. So you kind of, that was, that was the change. That was the break. It was just, you know, that some sort of picnic or event or whatever, um, just talking with random strangers. Yep. And I would say like at the same time, um, having understood how this process worked, um, you know, I would actually seek out people just to grab coffee or I go to networking or recruiting events. You were doing that after this, right? After this. Okay. So you, 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 did you get the job right away? Like within a few weeks? No, of- it was a process, right? So it was a process that took over a month. And I would say, you know, I went in for multiple rounds. I did some exercises, some brain teasers at the time. And, you know, but, but this was in conjunction after I realized this was what actually got me my foot in the door or actually got a conversation. Even got an interview. Yeah, got me that interview. This, um, you know, I started to seek out people who worked in the business, right? Junior level f- folks or. How are you doing? And, and were you using LinkedIn or was it even around then? Yeah, it's a little. No, I don't. I don't. I don't recall LinkedIn ever. Alum being. databases, stuff like that. Yeah. Then I started tapping into the alum database. I started to ask friends, "Hey, um, uh, I'm so and so. I broke my hand. You probably met me at a party in college, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking uh, for these opportunities. I really started broadening the net to to talking to people. I straight up stopped dropping resumes at drop like you know those job sites. Yeah. And over the course of call it like next month, month and a half, as I was interviewing at this first firm, um, you know, I got a lot of different interviews ultimately didn't work out because they were looking for very experienced people. Yeah. Um, You have to understand in 2009, there was more supply than demand at the time. And so people were just looking for people who have previous experience. Oh yeah. (laughs) And so that's where I was competing against, you know, I was, I showed up with a resume I remember some guy, I was sitting in the interview and he looked at my resume for a good 15 seconds, didn't say anything. I'm just sitting there waiting for him to say something. So after he read it for 15 seconds, he looks at me and he's like, so why the F are you here? (laughs) He's like, he's like, I look at your resume and there's nothing here that I could hire you for. Right. And so, you know, there are many situations where, what did you say? (laughs) I mean, so, so by this, You're trying to save it, trying to save it. Yeah. So, so there's, it's all about the story, right? People in the business love a, a good story. And it's not that it's fake. It's just that you have to be able to tell a compelling story. Um, for me, I just told, I, I told them about my success in music, what I was doing at the time. I was, you know, briefly managed by a large um, musical management company. And I told them, look, I'm willing to give all of these things up that I've worked for the last 20 years to come work for you guys, right? Like, yeah, this is this was a life passion that of mine. But looking at what you guys do, this is like something that I'm willing to just give up my life accomplishment for and start over and you know explore with you guys. And so that was a story that I went with. Um, you know, not exactly in that, you know, told in that exact way. It was right. better phrase than that. But you, you have you have to be able to show them and tell them that they're valued, you want to be part of their team um, and that they're building something really cool, right? So um, in so many words. So it, it, was a, it was a real education process for me. It was, it was a real um, 
a time for me to, to, to really start to exercise and to practice my speaking skills because historically I had spoken with my instrument, right? I never had to get up and be like, oh, this is what I'm playing. This is how long I practice for. <laughs> <laughs> like, I hope you like it. You know, don't move me off the stage. No, it's just like, it's like, hey, okay, here we go. Yeah, now it's like, you know, I have a, you know, eight by 11 piece of paper in front of me. I have to tell my life story in, in under 30 seconds and for them not to lose interest. So it was like a different skill that you have to learn, but it ultimately it's just, it. you do it enough times, you know exactly what to say. Yeah. And so you're kind of coming in, you ended up, I assume not getting the job at that place where the guy was asking you, you know, why yeah. are you here? Um, but you ended up getting a, a back office, middle office role at the first place. Yeah, it was a back office role. It was purely risk reporting. And and it was during the time when the SEC was pretty much um, like on top of every single bank in terms of their risk levels, their collateral, their, um, yeah. you know, they call them RWAs, risk-weighted assets, to cover all the bad loans that could potentially go sour. Um, and my job at the time was basically trying to collect data points. I was the bad cop in the group, right? And so... The group basically was risk management and the people were the analysts and the, you know, the senior, senior analysts were all modeling the company's, you know, projections, what they could potentially perform. Are they going to bust covenants or is there going to be a liquidity issue? Yeah. Um, they're not focused on how much, how, how big is the loan out to these guys and how much assets or risk weight assets do we have against those loans, right? And so my job was to collect from every single analyst for every single sector um, what the individual loans were. And so that involved a lot of large data dumps, a lot of kind of talking to people in terms of, you know, these spreadsheets were like 2000 rows long, right? And, and like gibberish and format that you just like, it was just making you dizzy and like you would fall asleep, like walk, going through the yeah. spreadsheet because it was so large yeah and and so my my job at the time was to collect all this data try to pivot table all that put it into the digestible form for senior um senior management of the group you got really good at excel really fast i got really good at excel really fast yeah the tables yeah. like EVA, modeling EVA. like v lookups like yeah. offset everything so um i i actually look back and i couldn't be more thankful um, for that experience, as much as it was such a bad fit for me, um, I learned Excel. I got my foot in the door. Somebody gave me a chance. Out of all those people that I talked to, this person gave me a chance. And this person was a really, really difficult person to work for. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was terrible. But um, I'm forever going to be in this person's debt for, for allowing me to get my foot through, through the door. What, are you working, what, were you, what were you working back then? 80 hours a week? 100? 60? Um, it was like 70 hours. It was my first. Yeah, it was like about 70 to 75 hours. And you didn't stay for very, you didn't stay for very long. This was a bulge bracket back office role, but you didn't stay for very long. So then where did you, what, did you start looking right away or within five months, you're like, I can't handle this or, or you're like, I just, I don't want to be in the back office. What was the thought process? Well, during that time. So, it, you know, I, I knew that I always wanted to invest. I always wanted to be close to the P&L. Right. So throughout the course of, you know, being in this position, I realize that your pay and your performance is the highest, right. When it's closest to revenue generating roles. And 
at the time when I was working in my free time, I would go and I would network with people in leverage finance. I would network with people who are in investment banking. Um, and I, you know, we would just really informally, we go out for drinks and we just, people would just kind of shoot off like what they were getting paid. Right. And so, and, and like the extra opportunities that they were talking about. What were you, what were you getting paid? You're like 50, 60, something like uh, that? Like, uh, I was getting paid 65, 65,000. Like almost no bonus, right? Almost no bonus. Yeah, it was no bonus. I mean, you're back office. You're not general, you're, you're a cost center, right? Yeah. So like, <laughs> you'd be lucky if you, you, you'd be lucky to keep your job. Yeah. Because I was getting paid like, yeah, 65, maybe 2009. I mean, it's, it's gone up significantly. I think all, I think all analysts at this point get paid at least like probably 75, 80,000. Yeah. I know investment banks last year through COVID, it was like 110 or something or yeah. Yeah, 110. That's what I heard. And there was that whole, um, the, the Goldman presentation that got leaked, which was destructive for. <laughs> yeah, we're about to rerun our uh, work-life balance survey that we ran and promoted based off of that. And uh, it's going to be interesting. We'll see what this I love, I love to see what the finished product is. Uh, I'm, I'm a little little removed from like entry-level um, economics, but it's good to, good to be like, you know what? Probably could have waited a couple of years before I started entry level, but yeah. No. Well, I, I would say I would say so. I was getting paid at like sixty five grand, um, and all the other analysts were probably getting paid probably sixteen to twenty five percent more than I was. And I learned really quickly that you know the front office roles were left thin: banking, trading, sales, right? And you know I, I knew I was going to be good at those roles because you know creating pivot tables and looking at data dumps 24 seven that I, I realized very quickly that was not what I wanted to do. And I always knew that this was just gonna be a first step in, of many steps that I needed to take to ultimately get to where I wanted to. Cause I knew there was no way for me to bridge the music to a front office investment banking role, right? Like you have an yeah. army to, to recruit from, from all the top tier schools, from your second, second tier schools, right? You don't need somebody who's like five years out of college and like trying to do a career change in the worst financial crisis <laughs> in the history of like, you know, of the world. And so like, for me, um, I knew that that's what I had to do. And so, you know, under a year I spent there, I eventually was able to get, again, through network, through friends, a role at, at a leverage finance shop. And unfortunately this was another um, sort of stone that I needed to, to, to step in order to get to my ultimate role. Um, the bank had been nationalized. There was no appetite for risk there. And it's, it's funny because if you want to run or be in a leveraged finance group, you have to be able to take on risk or underwrite risky deals. We were having trouble going to credit committee for double B plus names, right? Like, you know, leveraged finance, you would do triple C's. And at the time in 2009, nobody wanted to touch triple C's. And so um, it was ex extremely hard uh, to take risks. So we were never left lead on any deal. I got very used to being on the right for writing indentures and, you know, doing loan deals. And but, but the process itself of pitching, putting together presentations, modeling um, was was just another tool I was adding to my belt. And I knew I had to be patient. I wasn't complaining. I just put my head down and just did, did my work there. Yeah. Um, but it was hard. That was a really hard job. Like I remember one summer, I was like every, all the senior guys were on vacation. And then we got this deal that nobody on the street wanted, like Bank of America had passed, like JP Morgan had passed. And these guys were like, please like do this deal for us. And so we got mandated left lead on this, but it was just me and this VP and this VP was pretty new. Um, 
I think that week in the seven days, I probably slept 20 hours in seven days, right? So this, so this was, I was sleeping, I was commuting to Connecticut at the time. Oh my and, God. and so I was, my day for, for about a week and a half. And like, by the end of this, I was like hallucinating. I was so, I like didn't realize what I was doing, but you know, the commute itself is like 40 minutes, 50 minutes. And so I would get up at five. I try to get on like the 6.45, 7 o'clock train, get it to the office by like 7.40. And I'd be there until like two in the morning. And then you have to take another car or train back. You get home by three and then you're up in like two hours, right? So, so I did that for like, you know, maybe 10 days, four, 10 or 14 days. And like, by the end, I was just like, it was just me and him, right? I was doing all the work. So, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a sustainable lifestyle. And part of the reason why I left was not for that. It was really we just weren't seeing enough deal flow and I just wasn't getting the experience I wanted. I didn't care about, I didn't care about the hours, but you know, that I was young enough where I was like, you know you what? Could, you could kind of handle it. I can handle it. Like I don't have any friends, but it was, you were hallucinating a little bit by the end of the I was hallucinating. I was, I was talking to made up friends at the time and you know, any friends that I had talked to, I basically just had lost touch with because you were working so many hours. Right. Like yeah. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people in the business understand. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, kind of going back to my previous point is that I knew where I wanted to land and I knew what steps I had to take. You knew you, knew you wanted to be at a hedge fund eventually? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to be a hedge fund. I mean, I, I knew in, in order to, yeah, in credit or equities, but I, I didn't, ha I hadn't figured it out what product I wanted to be in or what asset I wanted to be in until later. Yeah. But I, I knew that, um, you know, I had at this time been talking to a lot of recruiters i have been talking to people about is it possible to jump into the buy side and everybody has told me look you need you need experience either as an intern on the buy side or you need to have investment banking experience or this and that something that was modeling intensive something that was quantitative in nature and i knew okay these are the boxes i needed to check off these are the jobs that offer those skills i'm going to spend time on it at the risk of seeming like I was bouncing from place to place, but I knew what I wanted for myself and like what home I wanted to be at ultimately. So that's, it was early enough in my career where I thought this is a risk that I'm willing to take because, you know, I'm getting a five, I'm starting five years later than everybody else. Right. And so I don't have the time and the years to spare. I need to meaning get jumping again, meaning jumping again was a risk you're willing to take. Yeah. Like I, I can't spend Two years. Three years at one, yeah. two years at one job and another three years at one job. I mean, like by the time you get to the bias, you're 50 years old, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and like if you wanted to put in like the proper two years, three years role to really absorb everything. And so I got absolutely what I was needed. And again, this may be the absolutely worst career advice. Don't take it. My situation is 100 percent different from most of the people on the street. I know there's a lot of people that are in shops that aren't getting enough deal flow. So it's that's it's relevant. Yeah, but but you know, I talk to people. I, I talk to folks all the time. I mean, a lot of friends of mine who are at either advisory firms or investment banks or yeah. hedge funds. You know, they're not seeing deals. It's like you know, the, the most common thing that I hear from from my friends is, you know, I, I just want to have something lined up, or I'm afraid of moving because I don't want to have a job. And, and like, it, it is that it is that uncertainty that comes along with, you know, not having a safety net or the security of a job. Mm -hmm. But most people, I find, talk themselves out of finding where they want to be at eventually because they, they're just comfortable and squishy where they are. 
mm-hmm. even though they don't like it, right? And I, I think that's that's fine. I, I knew I was always more driven than that. And if I was bored, I would never put in the work where I was at. So I needed yeah. to be, I needed to feel driven and excited about my work, right? And so, um, yeah, so that's that's basically what I was wrestling with at the time. And so you kind of are approaching that, but this was like your second your second gig at a, you know, you're doing the long commute, not in that, that not crazy long, but you're doing a commute. You're kind of, you were in Leadfin at that point, right? Yep. And then, so you're kind of already headed down that path with credit. So, but then tell me like, what's, what's the next thought process that you, another person, you know, that now this is your master networker kind of gets, tells you, Hey, we have another role, another analyst role or what? Yes. So the next job also was through a friend. Um, another that bulge I bracket. To, now your jump went back to a bulge bracket bank. Went to a bulge bracket. And yep. so it was a friend that had worked with at my first job, the first, the first position that I had been in. There's the connection. And, Yep. And this person had um, had basically left that previous job and networked himself into this group. And, and you know, I, I hit him up and I asked him, hey, look, I'm looking for, you know, uh, a role that has a quantitative slash, you know, legal structuring background or uh, perspective. And, you know, he said, look, I, I, I don't I don't have that particular role, but if you want to get your foot in the door, this is the way to do it. And so we did, we did, um, you know, a couple of interviews, a couple of conversations with people on the team. Um, the subsequent role was actually one of the most helpful roles I've ever taken. And why I say that is because in the invest, investing world, especially in credit, you have to understand legalese, right? And so in situations where you're, where you're in bankruptcy or you're arguing over assets or you're arguing about valuation and sort of the waterfall that ensues, it's really, really in, like important to understand the legal parameters of the instrument that you you live in, right? And so, yeah, um, it, it's not enough to, to to have to say, hey, look, I'm investing in the most senior part of the capital structure. There are busts, there are holes, there are documents that are Swiss cheese, right? And you need to be able to to understand that document uh, and, and understand like where the where, where the traps are. And so, my job. In the subsequent role was structuring credit agreements and looking at indentures. And so um, it was a great front row seat to how leverage buyouts are structured. Right? These were, um, you know, very large, well-known sponsors like TPG and Carlisle, uh, Blackstone mm-hmm. and Bain, Bain Capital. And they were the 800-pound gorillas in the room, and they were able to dictate a lot of the terms in these credit agreements and a lot of these legalese. Um, and, and the role was... The, the way I can describe this role is that you're a conductor, right? You're a conductor, like an orchestral conductor. Yeah. You're conducting internal credit approval. You're conducting the coverage teams or the left-wing groups, right? What they're willing to underwrite and sell to the market. You're under, uh, you're conducting um, the structuring aspect of it. Um, meaning you had to, you have to talk to your, your council and then your council had to talk to the company's council, right? So you have to orchestrate that conversation. And then you also have to talk to the company and try to manage their expectations because the things that they want and are asking for, they're not going to get all of them, right? So you have to, yeah, it's 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 a delicate dance. So you're you're managing these gigantic egos of five different parties. Yeah. Um, mean, meanwhile, trying not trying to blow up your own position because you are again the bad copy. You're telling people, no, the RP provisions cannot incorporate this. 
no, I cannot give you secure debt capacity that's going to overlever this company beyond 10 times, right? Like yeah. you have to, yeah, you have to, you have to, you have to be able to keep that channel open internally and externally and communicate very quickly. Like what is market terms? What is the bank willing to underwrite? And yeah. what is, what, what can you tell the company and the coverage banker so that you don't destroy that relationship, right? And so it's very, very delicate. But what I took away from that is, look, I understood, now I understand how banks extend their balance sheet, right? This, these are all the considerations into going, uh, going into extending a revolver or a term loan or underwriting a bond. And this is, this is the process that happens internally. And this is how I talk to capital markets, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's just a really fun process. But, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, it was not quantitative enough for me, right? It was a lot of, like, managing teams and, and, yes. and you're a connector and almost like a negotiator. Yeah. Um, and well, you were still structuring as well. You were structuring, yeah. But, but it wasn't quant enough for you. Yeah, but you were, you always ended up being the messenger people shot, right? Like, you, you show up with like something somebody didn't want to hear or it's the terms are not as great as they wanted. Um, you know, I, I saw people asking for like seven year revolvers, you know, and the, the market terms at the time were five year revolvers and, you know, maintenance covenants here and there. But some, some people were asking, no, I don't want five years. I want six or seven years. Right. And then I want term loans with no covenants coming in light. Right. And this was post greater financial crisis when people were coming out and saying, Never again will we have covenant light loans, right? And now everything's covenant light again. Yeah. <laughs> and 10, 12 years later. We didn't learn that much, huh? <laughs> we didn't learn that much, but you know, uh, you know, it's just funny because it just keeps repeating itself. And chasing people are like, yield, chasing yield, right? <laughs> chasing, chasing yield, chase, yeah, exactly. And chasing relationships. That's because no sponsor, no company wants to have prohibitive covenants. They want to go out and they want to make acquisitions. So they want massive, you know, acquisition baskets. They want massive accordions here and there. And so, yeah. Like at the time I was like, okay, this is really interesting. But, you know, I spent, uh, I think I spent three years there. Um, ultimately, again, my next role was also through networking. And this one was this next role actually uh, within the same bull bracket firm, I was very aggressive in chasing. And so I had come across this book on investing written by this guy who actually was the head of the desk at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this guy works at the firm. He's only 10 floors below me. I'm going to go and basically bug the hell out of him until he hires me. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way. Patrick at WallStreetOasis.com. Until next time.